Welcome to Wikibytes, a podcast to provide you with small and digestible bites of useless yet somewhat useful information from the depths of Wikipedia. Sit back and enjoy the content. Episode 18, The Great Smog of London. The Great Smog of London, or Great Smog of 1952, was a severe air pollution event that affected London, England, in December 1952. A period of unusually cold weather preceding and during the Great Smog led Londoners to burn much more coal than usual to keep themselves warm, while better quality hard coals tended to be exported to pay off World War II debts. Post-war domestic coal tended to be of a relatively low-grade sulfurous variety, which increased the amount of sulfur dioxide in the smoke. There were also numerous coal-fired power stations in the Greater London area, including Fulham, Battersea, Bankside, Greenwich and Kingston-upon-Thames, all of which added to the pollution. According to the UK's Met Office, the following pollutants were emitted each day during the smoggy period. 1,000 tonnes of smoke particles... 140 tonnes of hydrochloric acid, 14 tonnes of fluorine compounds, and 370 tonnes of sulphur dioxide, which may have been converted to 800 tonnes of sulphuric acid. Additionally, there was pollution and smoke from vehicle exhaust, particularly from steam locomotives and diesel fueled buses, which had replaced the recently abandoned electric tram system. Other industrial and commercial sources also contributed to the air pollution. On December 4, 1952, an anti-cyclone defined as a large-scale circulation of winds around a central region of high atmospheric pressure settled over a windless London, causing a temperature inversion with warm, stagnant air trapped under a layer or a lid of cold air. The resultant fog, mixed with smoke from the previous mentioned sources, formed a persistent smog which blanketed the capital the following day. The presence of tarry particles of soot gave the smog its yellow-black colour, hence the nickname pea super. The absence of significant wind prevented its dispersal and allowed an unprecedented accumulation of pollutants. Although London was accustomed to heavy fogs, this one was denser and longer-lasting than any previous fog. Visibility was reduced to a few metres. It's like you were blind making driving difficult or impossible. Public transport ceased, apart from the London Underground, and the ambulance service stopped, forcing individuals to transport themselves to hospital. The smog was so dense that it even seeped indoors, resulting in cancellation or abandonment of concerts and film screenings as visibility decreased in large enclosed spaces, and stages and screens became harder to see from the seats. Outdoor sports events were also cancelled. In the inner London suburbs and away from town centres, there was no disturbance by moving traffic to thin out the dense fog in the back streets. As a result, visibility could be down to a mere metre or so in the daytime. Walking out of doors became a matter of shuffling one's feet to feel for potential obstacles such as road curbs. This was made even worse at night since each back street lamp at the time was fitted with an incandescent light bulb which gave no penetrating light onto the pavement for pedestrians to see their feet or even a lamppost. Fog-penetrating fluorescent lamps did not become widely available until later in the 1950s. Smog masks were worn by those who were able to purchase them from chemists. There was no panic, as London was infamous for its fog. In the weeks that ensued, however, statistics compiled by medical services 
found that the fog had killed 4,000 people. Most of the victims were very young or elderly or had pre-existing respiratory problems. In February 1953, Marcus Lipton suggested in the House of Commons that the fog had caused 6,000 deaths and that 25,000 more people had claimed sickness benefits in London during that period. Mortality remained elevated for months after the fog. A preliminary report, never finalised, blamed those deaths on an influenza epidemic. Emerging evidence revealed that only a fraction of the deaths could be from the influenza. Most of the deaths were caused by respiratory tract infections, from hypoxia, and as a result of mechanical obstruction of the air passages by pus arising from lung infections caused by the smog. Research published in 2004 suggests that the number of fatalities was considerably greater than contemporary estimates at about 12,000 deaths. Environmental legislation since 1952, such as the City of London Act of 1954 and the Clean Air Acts of 1956 and 1968, led to a reduction in air pollution. Financial incentives were offered to householders to replace open coal fires with alternatives such as installing gas fires, or for those who preferred to burn coke instead, which produces minimal smoke. Central heating using gas, electricity, oil, or a permitted solid fuel was rare in most dwellings at that time, not finding favour until the late 1960s and onwards. Despite improvements, insufficient progress had been made to prevent one further smog event approximately 10 years later, in early December 1962. This concludes today's episode. As always, there is a Wikipedia link to today's topic in the show notes. I hope that you enjoyed the episode today, and I ask that you leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to the podcast. Please share this episode and previous episodes with your friends, family, and anyone that will listen. Thank you all for the continual support.